Uh, for any of you just joining us online, I'm Joel. It's my privilege to, and my joy to tell you how much Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And his, jo- his love, Jesus' love, is made so clear in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 45 to 62 today. While you turn there, I want to help us lean into our text with a quote by Joe Frazier. Who remembers who Joe Frazier was? I see Sam Dallas. Yeah. Joe Frazier was one of the greatest boxers, heavyweight boxers in all of heavy boxing history. He's actually the first guy to ever beat Muhammad Ali. Frazier was known for obliterating opponents who dared to step into the spotlight to face him. And there was a time when Joe Frazier was He had just completely crushed a competitor. And afterwards, a reporter came up and asked him if he pitied the guy he had just beaten so badly. Listen to Joe Frazier as we head into our text. He said, did you pity the guy? He said, absolutely not. I don't have any pity for the crushing, embarrassing defeat he suffered tonight. I have pity for him. For all the mornings, he cut short his daily run and nobody knew about it for all the sparring sessions in which he didn't give it his all, for all the sit-ups he didn't do because he didn't think he needed them, because what's done or not done in secret is made plain for the world to see under the bright lights of the boxing ring. Joe Frazier may have taken a lot of blows to the head, but I think this is brilliant. No doubt his opponent was confident before the match, don't you think? This guy had imagined he would be the last man standing. But then the bell sounded, ding, and he toppled like a house of cards. In Luke 22, Jesus has just told his disciples they're in for the fight of their life. Hostility is coming to them. And he is about to be betrayed, numbered with the transgressors. And he then warned Peter, Peter, Satan wants to sift you and the others like wheat. You know what Peter said? Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter imagined himself being the last disciple standing, unconcerned about this foe, Satan. Let's listen to how Peter fares during the hour and power of darkness. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 45. And when he, Jesus, rose from prayer... He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, he was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. 
And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little while later, someone said to him, saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you and we confess right now that we're seeking safety and security in all the wrong things because we're not yet glorified. So I ask and pray that right now you will reveal these things that can never keep us safe. And will you show us our Savior who can. Send your spirit and rend the heavens and come down, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we journeyed last Sunday with Jesus to the Mount of Olives, where he told his disciples to pray. And then Jesus went off a stone's throw away to pray himself. Verse 45, And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Luke notes that they were sleeping for sorrow. Sorrow because Jesus had just told them they were about to be betrayed. I think we all know what it's like to have deep sorrow that you're so sorrowful and then you just conk out, right? Now they see Jesus. I imagine they saw him fall to his knees to pray. By the way, Jews, they prayed standing up. They can tell Jesus is deeply burdened. He's weighed down with grief unlike any other grief he's known. Calvin actually notes here that Jesus has seen that his father's expression towards him has begun to change. The father from all eternity had looked upon his son with nothing but love and affection. But now his countenance is altering to that of the wrathful judge as Jesus is becoming sin for all of us. Have you ever experienced that? Someone you love, their gaze suddenly becoming cold and hard at you? I'm sorry about that, but that is only a pinprick compared to the pain that Jesus is experiencing right now. B.B. Warfield, writing on Christ's emotional life on this passage, he says this, listen, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but as we commonly say, of a broken heart. Have you ever thought of Jesus dying of a broken heart? long before he died on the cross. I think the disciples got a glimpse of this heartbreak. And they became so sorrowful that they just conked out and fell asleep. What do you think of that? He told them to pray. But they're sorrowful. In one sense, it's loving. They're pity for him, right? But friends, this is misplaced sorrow. 
And that is what these disciples, and I hope we as disciples, are going to learn today. That is why Jesus says these fellows who have cried themselves to sleep in verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you enter not into temptation. Jesus says, the bell's about to ring for round one. And you guys, your pity is misplaced. You need to be brokenhearted for you, not me. You aren't ready for this. You need to be on your knees, confessing your weakness and asking for help, asking God for help. And that is the word Jesus has for us today who have ears to hear it. Let me ask you, do you pity you? Do you pity you? You're not going to hear that from Oprah or any of our people on the TV, right? Do you pity you? You need to hear that from the pulpit. Did you get up today and acknowledge your inadequacy and begin the exercise of prayer? Did you fall to your knees begging God to deliver you from evil and temptation that you knew would come at you or could come at you today? Did you do that? If not, why not? What are you trusting in? Why do you imagine that you're going to win today's fight? Are you trusting in your own strength? I can stand up. Uh, Jesus just warned Peter about Satan sifting. How about this one? Are you trusting in your heart, in your love for Jesus? I had someone tell me that this week. My love for Jesus, my love for Jesus. This is what's getting me through, my love for Jesus. I hope that's not your answer. Do you think you love Jesus more than Peter? Do any of us here think we love Jesus more than Peter? He gave up his livelihood, left everything, gave it all up to follow Jesus. And look at him in this text. You can spend years creating and constituting Christian character before a watching world, and your reputation can be ruined in a matter of minutes or moments. So if we cannot trust in our own strength, our own loyalty and love for Jesus, <laughs> where do we turn, Pastor? Here it is. Are you listening? My great comfort is that Jesus loves me more than I love Jesus. And your great comfort is that Jesus loves you more than you love Jesus. And by the way, your neighbor's great comfort, whoever you're thinking of right now, is that Jesus loves them more than they love him. In fact, why don't you tell someone that right now? I have to be the preacher every Sunday for at least 35 minutes. I want you to be the preacher for five seconds right now and tell some neighbor here the good news that Jesus loves you more than you love Jesus. I'm serious. Do that right now. See a couple of you over there sitting by yourself. Yes, I hear you. Yes. Jesus loves you more than you love Jesus. That is the good news. And I encourage you to pray that God will open your eyes up to somebody who needs to hear that this week, one of your neighbors. Because there are many of your neighbors who have no idea they're greatly loved. Have no idea. That is why they are the way they are. And their only hope is to discover Jesus' love and compassion, which is all over this text today. You see, Jesus, he is all about showing love and compassion all the way up to the end. Jesus' enemies are about to seize him, to kill him. But Jesus continues to encourage these disciples, rise up and pray. He encourages his disciples all the way up to the double cross, which we find starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. 
He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You've all heard this, the Judas kiss. Even people who don't know the Bible, they've heard about the Judas kiss. On one hand, though, it's just it's it's pretty simple. It's a way to identify Jesus to his enemies. You know, it's dark. It's hard to to tell who's who's there. So Judas says, "I'm going to single him out with a kiss." But on the other hand, it's really an irony, an expression of love becoming the kiss of death. That's why Jesus questions in his final words, his final words to his one-time disciple who had followed him for three years. His final words. Gildenhaus comments, in these last words of the Lord to the one who had so often the opportunity of learning from him and knowing him and loving him, but who loved darkness more than light, more than the light, he for the last time tries to bring him to his senses and to a realization of his terrible conduct so that he might come to true repentance in time. Jesus loved Judas to the end. What do you think of that? I think Gildenheis is right. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't phrase this as a question. Jesus is once more op- cracking open the gates of repentance so that he could enter into heaven, that Judas might be saved. The deed is already done. He can't go back now. They've got Jesus. But Jesus is saying, why don't you love me as I have loved you? Don't you remember the time you kissed me before and you felt something? does this happen? Judas didn't start off planning to betray Jesus. No, he was delighted by Jesus. He was intrigued by his words, his teachings, his miracles. Overjoyed when, I get to be one of the twelve? Really? Me? How did he get to the double cross? I think we all know the double cross always starts with the drift. It always starts with the drift. Over time, he began to see that Jesus' mission actually required sacrifice. Sacrifice of something he loved more than he loved Jesus. Money. And when he realized that Jesus was actually serious about dying, the whole kingdom of God thing wasn't going to be a prosperity route. When he saw Jesus' stock starting to go down, he sold his shares. He loved money more than he loved Jesus. Now, some of you might be getting a little nervous at this point because I just said that we, like Peter, don't love Jesus enough. And none of us wants to be a Judas here, right? So what's the difference, Joel, between Judas and Peter? It's the difference between admitting weakness and wickedness. The difference between weakness and wickedness, admitting that. Peter sees his failure to love and leaves the crowd of sinners to go repent in tears. Weakness. Judas sees his failure to love and stays with the crowd of sinners and clings to his cash. He doesn't repent. This one last opportunity he has when the Lord looks on him with compassion and asks the question, that is wickedness. Like so many in our culture who choose fading pleasures, it quickly becomes bitter, doesn't it? When you choose to love something more than you love Jesus, it gets bitter over time. And Judas will take his own life and not even get to enjoy the thing that he loved. That is why at the Lord's Supper, Jesus had said, I go as it has been determined, but woe to my betrayer. Jesus is saying, pity the self-serving sinner, not the suffering Savior. 
Pity the self-serving sinner, not the suffering Savior. If you're not yet Christian, Jesus still pities you. Repent and believe the gospel. If you are a Christian, Jesus says, pity the self-sufficient sinner that remains in you. Repent of your pride and your previous prayerlessness or prepare for perpetual panic. As like we see in our next scene, verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. <laughs> what about you? I don't think this is the disciples' finest moment. <laughs> what do you think? Remember, they took Jesus literally earlier on when Jesus said, sell your cloaks and go out and buy a sword. Actually, the only thing that would probably make this more comical is if they had, were swinging swords in their underwear right now. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Jesus had told them he must be betrayed in order to fulfill scripture. And they, and by that, there's only two of them who have swords. <laughs> they whip them out and they ask Jesus what to do. Don't even wait for an answer. And then they go all Zorro on the place and behold the vanquished. They're on the floor, an ear flopping around. <laughs> I don't know if ears flop, but that's, that's what picture in my mind. Anyway about it, this is military ineptitude at its finest. That's why Jesus says, oh, guys, cut it out. This is totally laughable. So let me ask us as we're smiling here, how is our sword play? What do you mean, Joel? I'm talking about this right here, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. I'm talking about your Bibles. Are you reading it? Are you reading it every day? Are you meditating on it? Jesus just quoted in our last sermon a verse from Isaiah 53 to these guys, these same guys with the swords, and said, this is what I came to do. Oh, incidentally, I gave that as a homework assignment last week. Read Isaiah 53. I said, I want everyone to do that. How many of us did that? You don't have to raise your hand. God knows. How many of us did that? I suspect some of us didn't. I did. Because what sort of pastor would I be if I didn't model that for you, if I told you to read this and then I didn't do it myself? And what sort of pastor would I be if I didn't remind you regularly to be in your Bibles? And what sort of pastor would I be if I believed that what you got from me on Sunday was enough for your life? A pitiful, prideful pastor. Because you need more than what I can give you in 35 minutes. So how's your sword play? Jesus quotes from the Old Testament because he assumes it takes a whole Bible to make a whole disciple. Are you a whole disciple? Are you daily taking in his word? Look at what happens to these disciples who didn't take in his word. They didn't connect what he was doing right now in this betrayal with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 said he was to be like a lamb led to slaughter. He would bear our sins so that we could be right before God, justified. Jesus said, guys, this is a moment where we're supposed to be passive. And it's off with our enemy's ears. Or one ear, sorry. One ear, that's all they got. <laughs> Do you see something here? They were active when they were supposed to be passive. And they were passive when they were supposed to be active. 
Here's something for us to think about in our current moment. Some of us are upset about the unchristianizing of our nation right now, right? Our culture. It's actually what the disciples are facing, isn't it? They had thought Jesus is going to stay out front and center in Jerusalem, out in the public square, everyone honoring and respecting him, seeing his teachings as the truths that we are to acknowledge and to follow. And now government and religious leaders are set to remove Christ. And here we are a nation which used to give place to Jesus and his teachings. And both government and religious leaders are working hard at removing him right now. They're doing a great job too. His teachings about marriage and morality are seen as unloving and antiquated. There's lots of pastors who are removing Christ from the pulpit by the things they say it's okay to do. Oh, and our government too, right? Actually, one of our members here did all he could to keep Christ in Christmas at his school. I have no doubt there were times he wanted to lop off some ears as he was hearing, telling me what they're doing in his school. And we're rightly angry about this, and we want to get militant, don't we? And sometimes we do, don't we? We get passive when we should be active, and we get active when we should be passive because we don't believe in the power of prayer, and we're not steeped in what the Bible teaches. Actually, the Bible teaches us that the gospel is about God snatching victory from the jaws of defeat again and again to shame our enemies. And then that's why we love our enemies all the time in the middle of that, just like Jesus does here. Look at his compassion again. And he touched his ear and healed him. Verse 52, And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. This is your hour and the power of darkness. <laughs> Jesus shows compassion to an enemy by healing his ear, his love once again on display. I was trying to imagine, can you imagine being that dude and then continuing to arrest Jesus? If I'm the servant, I'm all in with the guy who just picked up my ear, put it back on my head, and healed me. Right? My not yet Christian friend, if Jesus has been kind to you this week, this month, this year, this is a call for you to repent right now of your sin and believe the gospel. Otherwise, you're a coward, like Jesus says here as he exposes his enemies. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, you know, if I was guilty of all this, you'd have done this publicly in the light of day. I mean, their secret arrest and isolation, in the dark, it actually reveals their dark motives. It also reveals who they're working for. They're agents of Satan. And this is the hour and the power of darkness. Friends, Luke likes to do this. He likes to pull back the curtain every now and then to show us the real battle going on. That Satan is actually, he uses men like tools to destroy those that Jesus loves, to destroy Jesus as much as he can. Even right now, we're in a war, you and I, we're in a war far greater than what we see in Ukraine right now. Do we believe that? <laughs> we did, we beat our knees a lot. It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but Peter doesn't yet get it. Verse 54, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. The disciples at this point are double-crossers and deserters, but not Peter. Actually, we might look down on Peter. 
But I was asking myself, would I have done what he does here? He's still following Jesus. Half-heartedly, yes, but he's still following him. Right in the courtyard of his enemies. Of course, the problem is he's going to join the double-crosser, the deserters, and become a denier because he's not prepared for what he's walking into. And notice there's a spiritual progression here that leads up to this. We've seen his pride. He imagined himself, he was arguing about being one of the greatest, and then he imagined himself being ready to die for Jesus. So we've seen his pride, then we see his poverty. Failure to be taking in God's word, what he needed. And we've also seen his prayerlessness. Sleeping when he should have been praying. How do you think he's going to fare during the hour in power of darkness as he steps into the ring? Verse 55. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. <clears throat> Last week I actually had an out-of-the-ordinary encounter. I saw our new congressman uh, at the coffee shop. Being that he was on my turf, I introduced myself and said, What, it is, what a pleasure it was to meet Congressman Todd Rokita face-to-face. At which point he shook his head and denied it and said, I am not him. I'm Congressman Rudy Yakum. Todd Rokita is our Attorney General. <laughs> it's a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> now the nice fellow who was with him actually said, uh, you're not the first guy to mix him up with Todd, which was kind of him, although I Googled Todd and they don't look alike, so it didn't help at all. <laughs> I'm not sure why I chose to include that embarrassing moment. Maybe I'm suggesting you shouldn't talk to pastors about politics. <laughs> but more, actually, I was embarrassed in front of people I don't even know. I was embarrassed. We all struggle with fear of man, fearing men more than we fear God. The same is true of Peter here, though it's not a case of mistaken identity, though Peter wishes it was. An hour ago, Peter was saying, Jesus, you're my ride or die. You're my ride or die. And now a teenage girl who's no threat. She has no status, right? She points him out. This is a softball lob. It's baseball season, right? We're getting there. This is a softball lob. Peter should knock this out of the park. And never confesses his Lord. He leaves his bat on his shoulder. He can't even bring himself to say Jesus' name. I don't know him. And then a second time. Strike two. Doesn't even swing. Then someone recognizes his accent. See, Galilee's up in the north, so it must have been something like a Jersey accent. I can't do a Jersey accent, but they could recognize him by his accent. He's from up that place where Jesus is from. He's cornered now, right? He should swing for the fences. Nothing. And by the way, this whole time, and Luke writes this and others do as well, he can see into the chief priest's house. We're going to read about that next week. Jesus is right over there being mocked 
and beaten. We talk about an hour-long time period. Peter sitting there. He's watching the Jesus he loves being mocked, being beaten, being ridiculed for an hour. I'm certain that Peter is pitying Jesus like he was in the garden when Jesus pled and bled. How much did pitying Jesus help Peter? I hope that you do not pity Jesus here. I hope you don't pity him at Gethsemane. And I hope you don't pity him on the cross. Jesus doesn't want you to feel sorry for him and his suffering. Someone actually commented last week how they were thinking about letting their kids watch The Passion of the Christ. And they said, we really appreciated your thoughts, Pastor Joel. I like to be appreciated. That's not why I'm going to repeat what I said. I'll repeat it because it bears repeating. I've never watched The Passion of the Christ, and I don't want to. And I'm not judging you if you do or did. But if you do or did, don't pity Jesus. Don't pity Jesus. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want it. In chapter 23, which we'll come to soon, Jesus will tell women weeping as he's carrying the cross, don't weep for me. Don't pity me. Pity you. Jesus didn't suffer and die so you and I would feel sorry for him. He doesn't want your pity. Jesus suffered and died so that you will fall on your knees and worship him and hate your sin that put him there. Jesus didn't suffer so that you would pity him. He suffered and died so that you would fall on your knees and hate your sin that his cross cured. It's why Jesus said to sleepy disciples, pray that you not enter into temptation. It's why he warned Peter about Satan. And sadly, Peter just shrugged it off and said, I'll go to death or prison for you, Jesus. And we see he can't even last one round in a lightweight division fight. Friends, Peter was told that Satan was seeking to sift him. And Peter is being pummeled, pummeled right now. And notice where it occurs. He's not on the witness stand facing abuse. He's in a very comfortable, common place by a fire with a bunch of ordinary people. The sort of places that you and I would be, I think. Would we fear being canceled by folks around us for confessing Christ? Do you see how easy it is to deny Jesus just by saying nothing? And do you see how hard it is to turn back once you've started down that path? Peter sat there for an hour after doing it twice and still couldn't bring himself to confess Jesus as he watches Jesus suffering for him. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We have a family that used to be members here who had a whole lot of pictures of roosters in their house. Remember the Blackwells? John actually oversaw several chicken operations. I once made a sermon joke about decorating our whole house with roosters. Roosters to remind me daily to hold fast to my profession. 
And Gloria wonderfully saved me from my wife's wrath by buying me this really, really nice rooster painting. And she said, hang this in your office by the door. (laughs) So I have a picture of a rooster I see daily because I see how Jesus signed, rooster signed, bless Jesus, or bless Peter. Because what happened every morning for the rest of Peter's life? Every morning Peter would hear the rooster crow and it would remind him of the word of the Lord. And it pricked his heart. And I'm convinced Peter got down on his knees and prayed every single morning for the Spirit's help to deliver him from evil. And what happened to Peter? Read Acts 1, Luke's companion volume. Peter was filled with boldness as he prayed. And Peter kept up his exercise of prayer every single day after that, preparing himself for the battle. That rooster by my door in my office, it reminds me to do the same. Actually, do you know that roosters have been used like this by Christians? The rooster weather vanes, you see those? They started off on churches over a thousand years ago. Rooster symbols were put on churches to remind Christians to hold fast to their profession. But friends, roosters were not made meant to look at. We're not to look at the roosters. They're to prompt us to what? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. I'm tearing up because I'm starting to look at Jesus right now. And I'm remembering what the word of the Lord says, what he did for me. We need to see that Jesus is looking at all of us right now. And are you going to turn and look at him? He's looking at Peter right now. This is amazing. Can you imagine being Peter? seeing the Lord Jesus being beaten and mocked. And suddenly in the middle of all that, when he should be focused on himself, he turns and looks at weak Peter, who is not prepared to stand fast for Jesus. Like Peter so wanted to, he wanted to. What was that look that Jesus gave him? Was it a look of, I told you so, maybe you and I are prone to with our kids? No. Jesus is the suffering servant who would not break a bruised reed, who would not quench a faintly burning wick, who told the story back in chapter 15 about the father who embraced the prodigal son. Oh, there was deep meaning in that look, a whole sermon. As Peter turns his eyes upon Jesus, (laughs) he gets a one-look sermon that changed his whole course of life. Peter didn't see his inadequacy, his failure to prepare. He didn't see his lack of love. Peter was thinking he was the greatest disciple in the world only an hour ago. In one sense, he actually was, but he was missing just one thing. William Barclay tells the story of a great composer. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, Edward Elgar, who was invited to hear this talented young singer perform actually a piece of his. He sat down and listened to her sing it with perfection. I mean, perfect pitch, every note. It was marvelous technically perfect. And they asked him, Edgar, what do you think of her? Here's what he said. She will be great when something breaks her heart. She will be great when something breaks her heart. This is what Peter needed. This is what you and I need. Peter needed to have his heart broken over the sin that took Jesus to the cross. 
And the moment Peter turned his eyes on Jesus, he saw that Jesus' eyes were turned on him. And he remembers the word of the Lord. And unlike Judas, he leaves the crowd, he leaves the comfort, and he went out and wept bitterly. But this is a different sorrow than the earlier sorrow that put him to sleep. It was not pity for Jesus' suffering, was it? No, it was pity for his own sin, his own weakness that caused Jesus to suffer, that led to that. This is repentance unto life, as our catechism teaches. It's a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. We sang, O sacred head now wounded, what thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. O mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor and save me by thy grace. Do you want assurance of salvation? Do you want to become more useful for Jesus? It doesn't come by what you hear from so many pulpits out there right now. I'm going to continue to pound this through positive thinking, through great feelings, imagining yourself to be more than you are. You're so special. You're so wonderful and all that. In one sense, you are, but you're also inadequate. What gets you past that inadequacy and makes you useful to Jesus and gives you assurance, full assurance of salvation, is seeing your sin, acknowledging your sin, and then looking at your Savior. Seeing your sin and looking at your Savior. Peter found like he did on the day when he walked on water. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, you won't fall. We just keep our eyes fixed on the loving Lord. Who did he come to save? Failures like me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and we're just so thankful. You sent your greatest treasure, our Lord Jesus, to the cursed death of the cross, so that we might see our sin so that we might acknowledge that we deserve to be there, that we might see your great love and that we might look upon Jesus and see his gaze and see his arms outstretched on the hardwood of the cross, that we might come within his saving embrace. Father, I ask and pray, will you, if there's anyone here who has not yet repented of their sin, acknowledged it and looked to see the loving face of Jesus, I pray that today might be the day if there are some of us who are still being self-sufficient or believing that we can't be saved, I just ask that, Father, send your Holy Spirit and give us assurance of your love, assurance of your grace, assurance that you love to take those who are most inadequate, those who are most downtrodden, those who are weakest. You choose them that you might put to shame all those who are powerful and mighty in this age. Help us to see that as we see we're inadequate and failures, you turn it all for your glory and our good. Help us, Father, to believe this, to trust in you, and to follow Jesus all our days. We pray this in his name. Amen.